0: Vice Chair in the Department of Neurology at Stony Brook University in New York. Joining me is Amy Perrin-Ross, an Advanced Practice Nurse and Neuroscience Consultant. Thank you for joining us for this continuing medical education activity. In this activity, we'll talk about the current management of MS with a special focus on assessing and monitoring patients' cognitive health. We'll start with the case study. Amy do you want to introduce
1: this? Sure thanks Dr. Coyle. So for our discussion today we're going to be introducing the case of a 43 year old black man who you are assessing after he developed optic neuritis. During the examination you don't find any other symptoms other than some minor imbalance during his tandem walk and some mild weakness. His brain MRI, however, is significant for 13 T2 lesions that are localized to the periventricular and the infratentorial regions, several of which are um, contrast enhancing. And there are also three spinal cord lesions. We also find that oligoclonal bands are present in his CSF and his IgG level is elevated. Further testing for things like Lyme disease, ANA and sedimentation rate are actually negative. When he first developed symptoms, he was treated with corticosteroids with little initial improvement in his symptoms. And from his family and his social history, he denies any personal or family history of any neurologic disorders. Currently, he's a, quote, social smoker. Um, Several months ago, he was laid off from his job as a warehouse manager after several poor performance reviews. He's currently separated from his spouse because she claims that he was drinking too much. So here we have a patient whose clinical picture is consistent with multiple sclerosis. So let's talk about how his presentation looks from a prognosis standpoint. Dr. Coyle, do you have thoughts about his prognosis standpoint?
0: Yes, I think it's very important to make the point that anybody hearing this case, uh, your, your um, tentacles should be raised with regard to real concerns about this patient. This is really a newly diagnosed uh, MS individual but there are multiple features that would suggest he has a very poor prognosis. Now, what does it matter what your prognosis is, good or bad, if you're gonna be starting a disease-modifying therapy? We have multiple choices. We have the needle injectables, we have the orals, we have the monoclonal antibodies. That's how I talk about it. And each of them has different properties. But I think we would all recognize that if we have somebody with a poor prognostic profile, uh that the choice of the dmt becomes very important and you would probably really put a heavy emphasis on efficacy you would probably really want to think about a high efficacy agent now as i just look at him he is black he's african-american and he's a male black african americans have more severe uh ms uh in fact there was some recent studies from norcrims that reported on uh, blacks with MS versus white Caucasians with MS uh, versus um, uh, Hispanics with uh, with um, MS. Um, Amy, do you want to make any comments about that study before I go further? Sure. Um, I think it was clear from um, the
1: output of that study that um, if you're African American or Black, um, your prognosis is poorer, um, particularly if you're a male and the older we get, the, the you know, potential worsening of the prognosis. Now, 43 years old, all things considered is not old, but if we're looking at diagnosing many of our, our people with MS in their late teens and 20s, 43 years old is, is certainly an older age population.
0: In the recent um, virtual AAN uh, 2021 meeting, it was very disturbing that Blacks uh, with MS were financially doing way worse than whites with MS, emphasizing an issue in our country. They had greater disability. They had greater disability. They were less likely to be on disease-modifying therapies. And uh, Hispanics, Latinx really echoed that. So this really raises concerns to be starting. Now, you can say that, you know, an optic neuritis is really not bad. That's supposed to be a good prognosis. But he has uh, features on his, on his exam that show there's motor weakness. And there's some incoordination, some cerebellar features. Those actually are not are not good. He's a smoker. We know smoking makes MS worse. That's also of really great uh, concern. We look at his MRI scans. He has 13 brain lesions. He's presenting with his MS. He has a very high lesion load. He has several enhancing lesions. The location of lesions are important. He has infratentorial uh, brainstem cerebellar lesions. And then we look at his spinal cord and he has three spinal cord lesions at presentation. In for a tentorial and spinal cord are recognized as, you know, areas that convey more um, significant um, disease. Um, He has oligoclonal band positivity that helps diagnostically. It also happens to be a poorer prognostic indicator. Uh, So from very many points of view, uh, you would be very concerned about this um, individual. There were also hints of social Uh, issues. Uh, Amy, do you want to make any comments about that? So, yes. I mean,
1: um, well, socially, he's currently a social smoker, and I don't know how social he is, but as you've mentioned, uh, no amount of smoking, social or otherwise, is is very good, and it's one of the indicators of a poor prognosis. The other thing is that he was laid off from his job as a warehouse manager after several poor performance reviews, and You have to think about, well, what does that mean in terms of why did he have poor performance as a manager? Did he have difficulty um, delegating or assessing workflow? Did he have difficulty uh, coming up with uh, plans for how to implement whatever needed to be done with uh, his workers? Um, so you wonder, I mean, that raises a red flag in my mind about what his cognitive abilities might be. Um, he's also currently separated
0: from his spouse because he's drinking too much. I think this, this initial presentation allows us to emphasize the importance of an accurate diagnosis early. He went through a robust workup. He had his brain image, his spinal cord image. He, has a, he had his spinal fluid looked at. It also emphasizes being on the alert for, uh, for potential other diseases. And we didn't mention here, but I'm now routinely ruling out neuromyelitis optical spectrum disorder and MOG-associated disorder, or so-called MOGAD. These are much rarer neuroimmune diseases that can cause an optic neuritis, but they can definitely mimic MS. For many years, they were considered a variant of MS they have auto markers in the blood. So you can check IgG to aquaporin-4 and IgG to MOG. And we're actually doing that now uh, in basically everybody that presents with potential relapsing MS. Um, Amy, is that something that you're checking as well routinely? At least uh, at yes, we're,
1: we're definitely looking at that um, earlier on than we ever used to if there's any evidence of uh, a potential for that we're we're actually evaluating that not we're not quite doing it on every patient but uh, far more than we ever used to and one of the reasons that I might want to think about checking that in this gentleman is because his initial response to steroids was poor and so we have to take into consider uh, into consideration potential other issues that may be going on
0: here, perhaps, in NMOSD? Absolutely. And and perhaps the final thing I'd say here is how insidious the cognitive uh, difficulties may be. And you do really need to be on the alert for something like job performance. Maybe it's due to alcohol abuse, uh, but maybe he has a thiamine uh, deficiency. Maybe he has a marital Uh, breakup, but uh, I think you really need to have a high suspicion for the possibility of cognitive issues because it is one of these invisible symptoms. Uh, Amy, what can you tell us about, uh, you know, cognitive impairment in MS and how frequently does it occur? Well, uh, you know,
1: cognitive impairment in MS is something that occurs certainly much more frequently than we have ever Really thought about. Um, many patients, estimated up to two-thirds of people will have um, cognitive impairment. And it, particularly early on, it's rarely assessed. In my practice, it's assessed much earlier, again, than it ever used to be. And it's not easy, um, you know, if you've got a young person, even in their 20s, 30s, 40s, or 50s, to ask them about, you know, memory loss and cognitive issues and things. Um, So we rely on some of the um, diagnostic tools that are utilized in terms of uh, screening for cognitive symptoms, particularly the uh, symbol digit modalities test or the SDMT. Um, We see cognitive impairment earlier and earlier in people and particularly in uh, today's arena, in the arena of COVID where everyone's lives have been really turned upside down. Um, work life balance has changed they may be caring for children There, just all kinds of things going on that number one can contribute to things like anxiety and depression which will make cognitive uh, dysfunction even worse but how much of what's going on is truly a cognitive symptom related to MS things like uh, complex attention or uh, verbal memory or visual memory, some of those kinds of things. And so we do our best to evaluate them um, sooner. Um, In terms of um, people with uh, clinically isolated syndromes, uh, we can actually see one out of three people um, with a clinically isolated syndrome with actual cognitive dysfunction. And again, in in my practice, uh, we try our best to to get a uh, formal neuropsychological evaluation to set a baseline as early as we can. And we find this is helpful for a lot of reasons. One, it's gonna give us an idea of where the patient currently is. Number two, it also helps to often tease out some of the depression and anxiety experiences that may be contributing to the cognitive symptoms. And number three, we use that baseline so that if time goes on and people are having increasing cognitive difficulty, we actually use that as part of our rationale for um, assisting a person to apply for disability. Particularly someone like this gentleman, who's a manager or in a managerial position. He's got a lot of cognitive responsibilities in his position, and had we had an evaluation earlier, perhaps we could have uh, forestalled the whole issue of of him being
0: laid off. You know, people seem surprised that when you begin to probe (coughs) clinically isolated syndrome, the first attack, or even radiologically isolated syndrome, um, syndrome, RAS or RIS, which is picking up an asymptomatic individual who happens to get an MRI scan of the brain and lo and behold, it's very abnormal, suggestive of MS, yet they are normal on the exam and have no neurological history. People seem surprised that you find a significant minority who have cognitive impairment if you look very carefully, but they shouldn't be surprised. Think about our understanding of MS. MS is a chronic at this point, incurable disease that strikes young adults that involves permanent accumulating central nervous system damage, including to the brain. Of course, it's going to interfere with cognition in that sort of uh, paradigm. And we can see the imaging correlates of that. Greater lesion burden, more likely to have cognitive loss. Hitting gray matter, deep gray matter and the cortical, cortical part of the brain with volume loss atrophy or cortical uh, lesions. Uh, You can see the hippocampus and amygdala, the temporal lobes uh, hit. So you get structural damage to brain tissue, but just think about the MS disease process. It targets synapses. These are how neurons connect and talk to each other. You're disrupting circuits, okay? Uh, in one study, they took very early MS and they did functional MRI scan for a cognitive task. It was screwed up. They were really using more brain to do a cognitive task than, uh, than uh, controls, even though they weren't aware of any cognitive dysfunction and no one else uh, around them had picked up on it. It was there already because of the damage. And it's not just the damage that MS uh, does, but we have to uh, think about the concept of cognitive, re- uh, um, cognitive reserve. People are born with different levels of uh, intelligence and brain capacity to a certain extent. And if somebody gets the short end of the straw, they are not going to age as well when particularly they develop a disease like MS that is now hitting, targeting uh, the brain to cause further damage. So that's an important factor. What's their lifestyle choices? Are they living healthy or not? Do they have comorbid conditions? This is all going to affect how well the central nervous system of that individual can bear up to the insults of MS without showing issues such as cognitive uh, problems. So you can see why cognitive issues can really be so, so common in this um, disease. I um, and- also noticed that,
1: <clears throat> excuse me, yep. um, that there is a higher prevalence of cognitive dysfunction in people with progressive MS. And, you know, 20 years ago, it was thought that you really didn't have cognitive problems until the late stages of disease. Well, obviously, everything that we've shown up to this point shows that it starts with even RIS or, or CIS. So it's not just something that we to the back burner until they get, you know, increasingly disabled. There's a higher prevalence as the disease progresses, but it it can start off quite early in the disease.
0: And Amy, I know that there have been studies that looked at what, what cognitive domains are affected in MS and even studies suggesting there's like a pattern of deterioration and there may even be a breakdown of cognitive phenotypes. What do we know about those things? So, um,
1: you know, some of the more commonly affected domains are things like learning, um, the ability not only to process and learn new information, but to recall that information when it's needed. Um, complex, complex attention is another one of the commonly affected domains, and this really impacts both maintaining as well as manipulating information. You know, I, I tell people, you know, it's, it's not the 1950s anymore. It's, you know, 2021, and we are all constantly bombarded with information, whether that's 24-7 news or radio or computers or text messages or whatever. And we simply cannot process all of the information that comes our way. But those of us without cognitive impairment generally do a pretty good uh, job of of maintaining and manipulating information. People with MS on the other hand are the ones who are much more likely to have difficulty with that and they lose some of the important pieces. Um, Language, including things like naming and word finding um, can certainly be um, commonly affected in MS. Uh, The Oh, the words on the tip of my tongue, I know what it is. Particularly in people that have been in long-standing relationships with their partner, um, we often find that the partner simply fills in the word for the patient because they're, they're having difficulty coming up with it. While that may certainly enhance the conversation, it doesn't necessarily help the patient themselves. Um, and then another one of the cognitive domains uh, commonly affected is actually social cognition. Uh, Things like social perception and empathy and um, the ability to be aware of one's surroundings and what situation one is in and actually have empathy for others in, in surrounding areas. And unfortunately, when this social cognition is impacted, it often takes a significant toll on relationships we'd have to wonder if that might not be part of what has gone on in this gentleman's relationship and the the current separation from his spouse. Now, um, we also see problems with processing speed. And, um, you know, I tell people that, um, you know, if you think about listening sometimes to an auctioneer, you only catch every third word of what he or she is saying because they happen to be talking so fast. People with MS often experience this kind of slow processing speed, so they may really only be getting every third word, if you will, from the kinds of things that we as clinicians are saying to them, obviously leading then to confusion and, and misunderstanding, which is why whenever possible, we will follow up our discussions with a um, the after visit summary that summarizes all of the points that we've made during that visit. Visual and verbal learning, as I mentioned, can be um, affected as well as executive function. Some of those higher cognitive functions, things like reasoning, insight, initiative, judgment, those are the things that are also um, affected as well. And you know, if you look at cognitive phenotypes in MS, we've got people who have well-preserved cognition. Others who have mild verbal memory and they have some problems with their semantic fluency. Um, Some of them have mild multi-domain problems. So their visual learning may be impacted in some areas. Their verbal learning may be impacted in other areas. And then others have severe um, problems with executive functions and paying attention something that wouldn't bother someone. You know, my daughter jokes with me that um, when I'm on the computer, she could ask me anything and I would probably say yes. And I don't have MS, but when I'm on the computer, I need to focus on what's going on to pay attention. People with MS often find that they have to really make an effort to focus on what it is they're doing or what the task is at hand and not be easily distracted by things like the phone or the TV in the background or some of those kinds of things. So those are some of the the aspects that we talk about in terms of cognitive phenotypes.
0: Yeah, um, I think that's very intriguing. That was uh, a recent article that talked about the five cognitive phenotypes going from normal to really severe multi-domain. The scary thing was that in the cohort that they were studying, there were only 20% that were normal. That means 80% had cognitive impairment that ranged from mild to to very severe. And I think this really is suggesting that it's an area that we we don't pay enough um, attention to. And when we talk about what's possible with uh, in-office screening to suggest a deficiency. I think we have to be aware of this problem. We have to be looking for the red flags that really suggest that there may be an issue. We can ask the patient, and we also want to be prepared to speak to their significant others or any family members that are coming in in as well. Now, you mentioned the SDMT, the, the Symbol Digit Modality Test, we actually use that at Stony Brook. We, do, we try to do it once a year in all of our patients. Um, one of the big bonuses is it's five minutes or less, and you don't need, you, you, you uh, can really have a patient assistant do it. You don't need to have a high skill set to be able to do the symbol digit um, modality test. And it's looking at processing speed, but it's way more attractive than the PASAC. The MS Functional Composite used to involve the 25-foot time walk, nine-hole peg test, and the cognitive measure, the PASAC. People hated the PASAC. They were tearful. They were crying. It also was not a great study. Why did they put it in? Because that's what they had data on. They didn't have enough data on any other rapid cognitive measure in MS, so they got stuck with the PASAC. Uh, it's clear to me that the symbol-digit uh, modality test is is, is really... Uh, much, much better, and and I don't even know that people should be using the PAYSAT to be honest. And then we also have this BICAMS that's 15 minutes, but quite frankly, that's three times as long as the symbol digit modality test. That looks at processing speed and memory in three different tests, but that is another possibility um, that you can set up, okay? Um, So in our practice, um,
1: we only use the PAYSAT in clinical trials because- Number one, we generally don't have the time to do the pay set. and as a person who was trained and certified to administer the pay set, I can tell you the patients weren't the only ones crying when we tried to administer that test.
0: Right, It's, it's right. awful. Right. So I think that's really uh, an, an important point. I almost think we should get rid of it, but, but do you want to know the gold standard? What is the gold standard? Formal cognitive function testing. That is the gold standard by a PhD neuropsychologist. Here are the problems. Uh, It really is dependent on the neuropsychologist that you use. If you don't use a good neuropsychologist, then the cognitive function testing may be quite flawed and unsatisfactory. You really need a neuropsychologist who feels quite comfortable with neurological patients, I think and that is the gold standard test. So if you find a reliable, very good neuropsychologist, if I have any question at all, that's what I'm going to go to. I need to know the imaging. I like to know that. I I like to know the neurological exam, but if there's one test that I could do uh, to look at cognitive function, it's going to be formal cognitive function testing, four hour, half a day, one-to-one commitment, um, with a PhD neuropsychologist, but make sure you have a good group that you're, that you're working with. Um, would you agree with that, Amy?
1: Absolutely, because um, the neuropsychologists that we utilize are, are extremely familiar with our MS patients, and they are well aware of the fact that the timing of trying to do that four hours of testing is different per patient. There are some patients that are really good in the morning and just start to peter out by the time one or two in the afternoon comes along. There are other patients who don't even get moving till 10 or 11 in the morning and they are at their peak of performance in the afternoon. So the neuropsychologists really do their best to try to um, schedule that four hours of, of neuropsych testing when a patient has has the best opportunity to fully participate and Again, we use that whenever we can in our practice, insurance sometimes being um, one of the uh, limiting rate factors for us. But um, one of the other things that it really often helps us with is uh, fettering out or, or teasing out things like anxiety and depression and how much of the symptoms that the patients may not even be aware of as a symptom is actually related to depression and anxiety, which is certainly eminently treatable and may help improve this symptom itself.
0: I think that's a key point. When you take a group of individuals and they have cognitive complaints, approximately 50% of the time, they're subjective, not objective, okay? I'm talking about groups uh, in general because so many things can affect uh, cognitive abilities, pain, fatigue, poor sleep, uh, depression, anxiety, worry, stress, et cetera. Uh, but what the cognitive function testing can do is they should be able to call that out. They should be able to match on education and age. Uh, they should be able to look at comorbid conditions. And they give not just a qualitative but a quantitative assessment. And I, and I also think about using cognitive testing as a baseline because you can recheck a year, two years later, and they can go back and do uh, not quite as extensive, more, more selected testing and actually verify whether things are worse, the same, or potentially even uh, better, okay? So I think we need to be aware of all of those uh, issues. Okay, so, so what about when we talk about treatments? and what are the treatment options for our patient here and i think i've i've virtually come down on on the following concept and then i'll ask amy to to uh to comment so we have a lot of disease modifying therapies now i quote cover them all by talking about the needle injectables with acetate, interferon betas the whole group of orals and the monoclonals. And I group them like that with different things to favor each of those three groups. And then we begin to burrow down once we've done that. In a patient like this, who is starting out with so many poor prognosis red flags, I think virtually everybody would say, we really need to use a high efficacy agent. And as far as I'm concerned, that that limits it to the monoclonal antibodies that that's what we would really be, be focusing on. I think most people would agree with that. Now, just keep in mind, there's a big debate in the MS field at the current time. Escalation therapy, non-high efficacy versus high-efficacy agent from the get-go. Should that be reserved for people that you're truly worried about with uh, highly active MS or, and or very poor prognostic profile? Or would most MS do better by going on a high efficacy from the beginning? We don't have that data at this point in time, by the way. There are two ongoing prospective trials where patients are being randomized to um, so-called escalation, the more moderate efficacy versus high efficacy. And they will be reading out in the next few years. So we we expect to get some hard objective uh, data. But right now, this is a big result. What's your feeling about this gentleman in particular, and then the whole debate, Amy, about um, escalation versus high-efficacy therapy? Um, Well,
1: I agree with you that this gentleman warrants a high-efficacy therapy from the get-go. And I would likely, um, after, again, speaking about the three sort of categories, if you will, injectables, orals, and monoclonals, I would focus our discussion on the monoclonals and talk about uh, the high efficacy of the monoclonals, why I think that this would be a good place for him to start based on certainly his lesion load, um, but the vast number of lesions that he has, the diversity of those lesions, supertentorial, infantentorial, spinal cord, enhancing lesions, multiple T2 lesions, those are the things that I would use to make my case about why I want to start with a high efficacy therapy. Um, When one talks about the various therapies, one has to balance not only the benefits, but the risks as well. And I think from the research clinical trials that we have on all of the disease modifying therapies, yes, potentially there are Uh, more risks with the monoclonal antibodies but I liken it back to the concept that no no risk no reward and I think that you know again we would have to work on this in a shared decision making mode but I would say that in this particular case He is at greater risk for having worsening disease if I don't start him on a high efficacy therapy from the get-go. And I think we have well identified what some of the risk factors are for the various different adverse events with the monoclonal antibodies. We can uh, monitor for and manage those adverse events. And so it would be my suggestion that we move toward a high efficacy therapy because I, I just think his risk of, of having much worse disease is much greater than any risk of side effects. Side effects we can manage, worsening disease, we can't go back. So that's why I would go with that or make that recommendation for him. Um, I, I agree with you in terms of looking at the differences between the um, infection versus the escalation
0: so that's obviously very important to really delve in. Um, when you look at the high-efficacy monoclonals, you have natalizumab, excellent drug, very well tolerated, but carries the progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, PML uh, risk that needs to be followed, and you would need to check JC virus antibody, and you live under that threat. You have uh a very interesting induction agent where you treat a couple of days, uh, one year apart, and then you may not need to treat for 10 years and 50%, but carries four years of monthly monitoring with blood and urinalysis because of rare autoimmune disorders that can uh, follow and has been recommended as a third line choice. And again, special monitoring program in place. And then you have the anti-CD20s and they don't have any special monitoring truly put in place. We have ocrelizumab, the humanized anti-CD20 that's given IV every six months, and ofatumumab, um, a sub-Q given every four weeks, 20 milligrams of human anti-CD20. Right now, these are two very attractive, uh, high-efficacy monoclonals. The choice is a home therapy, monthly, or coming to an infusion room twice a year. And uh, they're likely to be joined in the next year by uglituximab, a a tertiary glyco-engineered chimeric anti-CD20 that's given IV every six months. So that certainly would be a treatment that I would talk about in this gentleman. And quite frankly, uh, I discuss high efficacy on the table for any treatment naive individual because maybe in shared decision-making, the patient puts a high quality on efficacy even though they may have mild disease, okay? But in this case, I think it becomes particularly um, important. Um, you know, one of the things that we acknowledge is that it can be, this is an invisible symptom. It can be difficult to really appreciate it. Sometimes patients don't want to talk about it. It's easy to miss. And thus in our trials, it's really kind of limited with regard to the, the data. Um, Amy, do you think there are any, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I don't think there are any DMTs where I feel, oh, they have a cognitive impact and another DMT does not. But, but how well has this been studied in clinical trials? We do have some where cognitive measures have been, have been looked at. Amy, do you want to say a couple words about that?
1: So yeah, I mean, as we talked about earlier, for the most part in uh, the research clinical trials, it's the MS functional composite and the cognitive component of that is the patient. And uh, besides being difficult to do, um, not a lot of emphasis has been placed on the cognitive outcomes in terms of what's reported in those clinical trials certainly much more on MRI and relapse activity, annualized relapse rate, and things of that nature. It just hasn't been, as you said, Dr. Coyle, a, a lot of, of uh, information that's come out that's really specifically cognitively related.
0: Yeah, and and it's it's disappointing. You see in uh, the saponimod expand, secondary progressive trial, they looked at sdmt and saw some benefits with treatment in the extension study from the phase three ozanamod trial um their daybreak they saw some benefits but it's looking at a fragment it's looking at the sdmt score understand that's not as robust as a whole cognitive uh you know testing but the bottom line is the cognition loss in MS is largely occurring because of damage to the brain. If you can block damage to the brain preventive, that is really a key for treatment, I think. And so when we look at symptomatic treatment, it's a little bit late. We want to prevent cognitive loss. So when you pick it up really early, that is a bad sign and that person probably needs something that you're confident is gonna minimize damage to their brain because that's only gonna make it worse. It becomes really important to make sure their lifestyle choices, not smoking, not abusing alcohol, um, being the optimum body weight, following a wellness program. It becomes particularly important if they have comorbid conditions, they be optimally managed to try to have their brain uh, image better. When you talk about the classic um, medications orally that are given for Alzheimer and dementia, and uh, dimension that are said to improve neurotransmitters, they don't really work very well in MS. I don't have a lot of MS patients on them, to be very candid. The data doesn't really support it. Sometimes you're doing it for patient request and family reasons, et cetera, but they really do not work very well. Amy, do you... Do you find that, or do you have any experience with that? Yes,
1: absolutely. I, you know, I've been around long enough to have watched many of the uh, treatments for uh, Alzheimer-type dementia be used and and uh, tried in people with MS. And the fact of the matter is, they're they're not really very effective. And as such, it brings us full circle back to what you had mentioned, and that is, let's prevent these problems or let's slow down the worsening if we can, because we really don't have things that are helpful. You know, I have patients that do all kinds of things. Um, People try things like ginkgo, for example. Um, You know, as far as I'm concerned, they can do whatever they want in terms of complementary medication, not alternative to the DMTs, but complementary as long as it's not something that's going to harm them. Um, You know, some of our patients um, report improvements uh, in terms of taking stimulants. We don't like to use stimulants in our practice because number one, it's a pain in the neck to continually re-prescribe them every month based on their controlled substance status. But we just don't really want to get into some of the stimulant side effects and, and the dependence on stimulants that people sometimes have. And the evidence really is either either insufficient or it's conflicting. Um, there was a class one trial, uh, or there is class one data from a randomized control trial of dalfampridine. Um, in 120 patients with cognitive impairments. And after 12 weeks of treatment, there was a significant and medium-sized effect on the SDMT versus placebo. Um, and this effect dissipated during the four-week post-treatment washout phase. Any other trials have really had class uh, two to four uh, data, and they've all produced conflicting data. So. You know, I have people who tell me that they feel better taking their delphamphidine, um, that not only is their walking improved, but their thinking is improved. And that harkens me back to the whole concept of fatigue and fatigue management is one of the symptoms in MS. You know, I know how I am if I'm extremely fatigued. I can't think straight. And, you know, my patients talk about that kind of stuff all the time. So sometimes if we can help them manage fatigue in a multitude of ways, generally starting off with lifestyle modification, like a sleep evaluation and good sleep hygiene and some of those kinds of things, if you're less fatigued, you're feeling better, you're often doing more, and the more you do, the better you're feeling and the better your cognitive function seems to be. Now, whether that pans out in a formal neuropsychological evaluation, I'm not sure but the patients do report, you know, well, when I'm able to exercise, when I'm able to get out and do things, on the days that I actually go into work in the office, I feel better mentally, I'm more challenged, I'm more stimulated, and I'm doing better. So again, you know, we do what we can, but when thinking about symptoms, cognition is not just an isolated symptom. In a mass, there's an entire cycle of symptoms, everything from, you know, poor sleep, which impacts cognition, which then, you know, if you're not thinking clearly and you're missing things at work or at home, you kind of get down and you get an increase in depression and that may increase your anxiety. So you're making more mistakes and you're doing less. And it's a big cycle that tends to go on in terms of, of symptoms and symptom management. So I never look at cognitive function or dysfunction in an isolated manner, always trying to find out what things are contributors and what we can do to impact those contributors.
0: So when we turn back to our patient and talk about what would be reasonable treatment goals, we need to get him on an effective treatment to minimize the ongoing damage to his brain. We need to explain why he must stop smoking this is a, uh, a voluntary lifestyle choice that makes a huge difference. It increases risk for relapsing MS, transitioning to secondary progressive MS, and he's at a bad age. Remember, transition to progressive MS is age-related, about 45 or 50 or 55, so he's in a danger zone. We need to, him to clean up his act with regard to the issue of alcohol abuse. We need to get him stable. Um, It's not going to be helpful uh, to be depressed and have a marriage that's breaking up and losing social support. He's gonna be very vulnerable to uh, spiral down. And we would want to absolutely assess his cognitive performance with formal cognitive function testing and make sure that we're monitoring it extremely carefully and there there are um cognitive rehabilitation programs uh computerized programs that can actually uh be of some help as well so he's going to need a whole network to really um help him so i want to thank you for participating in this activity and thanks to amy make sure you fill out for your cme accreditation i'm going to ask amy to uh tell me what she thinks the main key take-homes are, and then I'll say a final word on that. Amy?
1: So I think uh, some of the main key take-homes really are um, there are a multitude of things to be evaluated at the first assessment. And I would challenge uh, U.S. clinicians to look beyond what's on the surface, to delve a little deeper. Um, to uh, recognize some of the red flags uh, that may be cognitive issues like loss of a job, Um, look at some of the social factors, Um, look at trying to get to uh, the bottom of what uh, cognitive uh, dysfunction is really going on with this patient. Um, And again, remembering that they can be quite common and early on, Patients may not even recognize them, let alone report them. So it's incumbent upon us as clinicians to pull these things out. Think about the choice of disease-modifying therapy, the high-efficacy therapy for many of our patients. And remember the risk-benefit profile. The risk of starting with a therapy that is not as efficacious as we need it to be um, is that the patient has an MS clinical picture that worsens that we cannot manage, like we may be able to manage some of the disease modifying therapy uh, side effects. So again, monitoring our patients over time with things like the symbol digit modalities and recognizing that brain injury, um, in this case from multiple sclerosis, correlates really with cognitive disturbances. And it's always better to impact and minimize that brain injury um, in the case of people with MS by finding uh, an appropriate disease-modifying therapy that has the highest efficacy that would be use.
0: And I would say diagnose MS early. Treat MS early effectively. Emphasize the importance of lifestyle choices and wellness and identifying and optimally managing comorbid conditions that assault the CNS and will not allow the patient to age as well. Remember, we're aging from probably the late 30s on, our central nervous system is in the descent, I hate to say it, okay? So just just be aware of that. Cognition is an invisible, but insidious symptom, it's poisonous. So if we do suspect it, diagnose it, get the best evaluation, track patients closely, try to get the best recommendations to help them. Make sure their significant others are aware of it because you can be blaming the patient for a lot of issues and they are cognitively impaired. That needs to be recognized so so you don't really uh, inflict guilt processes on everybody. And I, I will end on an optimistic note. We're getting better and better. We are treating early. We are treating more effectively. And I think the best thing right now is if we can prevent the cognitive loss, then that is, that is uh, ideal. So thank you so much. Thank you.